character of David. And what we're, what we're essentially doing in this series to kind of, if you, if you haven't been with us before now, just to catch up, we're, we're trying to discover through the stories of David, we're, we're trying to discover an authentic, uh, biblical spirituality. A spirituality that takes into consideration the, the entirety of our lives, the whole you, right? This is, we're not just talking about kind of a, a daytime talk show pop spirituality um, that's kind of popular today. We're talking about a real, rugged, everyday spirituality, right? If you're here today and you hear the word spirituality and you're like, ah, that sounds kind of touchy-feely or something like that. It sounds kind of, you know, girly or something like that. We're talking about a real spirituality, right? We're not trying to talk to, you know, teach you how to, uh, you know, commune with nature. I'm not here to tell you, you know, you need to like listen to the wind, dude, because the trees are like singing a song. I'm not talking about that kind of spirituality, okay? I'm, I'm talking about a spirituality, I prefer to call it spiritual reality. That's my definition of spirituality, spiritual reality. It takes, it takes into account the fact that we are spirit beings. Everybody sitting in this room right now is a spirit, and you live in flesh and blood, raw, rugged flesh and blood, with all that comes along with that, right? So this is real spirituality. It shapes you from the inside out. And it actually, we're talking about a spirituality that actually works when you leave this building, right? So it's not just, we're not just trying to give you like a churchy spirituality, make you walk around more churchy. I'm talking about a spirituality that works when you leave here, which is kind of important if you want to be a normal, functioning, spiritual human being. So we're also looking at how do we live out a spiritual reality that doesn't start with us, but it doesn't make us the focus of worship. That's, again, that's a picture of kind of pop spirituality. But a spirituality that starts and centers around God. Because any spirituality that doesn't center around God, it may make for a nice pop spirituality, that pop culture, but it isn't spiritual reality. You with me? Everybody with me? I don't know if anybody's drank out of this, but we're going to take the friendship to the next level. Here we go. Whoever that was. So, where are we in our story? Uh, today, today we're going to look at a, a period in David's life. He's finally become king, okay? After this roller coaster story for his first 30 years, you know, he's going from this total nobody in a podunk family, podunk part of town, and he suddenly finds himself a national hero, right? We saw that. And then we found himself last week, he, he finds himself a fugitive running for his life, hiding from that king who wants him dead. And all the whiles we've been, been discovering, God is preparing David. He's shaping David. He's forming him. And, and he's creating him into the man that he wants David to become. So now, today we're in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And you can turn there if you like. We'll, we'll be showing it on the screen too. But in 2 Samuel 6, where we are is King Saul has, has finally died, and David has become king of all of Israel. He has, for the first time, united all the tribes of that whole region into one great nation. And, and here's the moment now in his 30s where God has brought David from the very fringes of society, you know, on the outskirts of, out there. He's brought him to center stage. He's about to become this pivotal figure in the, the whole history of the kingdom of Israel. Um, so this is, is very special. So we're in, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, 
starting in verse 1. It says, David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. Okay, so let's talk about the ark for a second. Let's talk about this ark. Many of you, uh, if you're like me, most of your education about the ark came from Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Um, which we learned about its incredible face-melting capabilities, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Can you believe, okay, I just looked this up this morning. It's 31 years old, that movie. Does that make you feel old? It makes me feel old. That's a little bit sad. 31 years old, that's an amazing movie. It's really stood up, I think. Anyway, but that's not what we're talking about today. It's back to the real ark. Um, so here's the thing about the ark. Hundreds of years earlier, God had delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt, right? Everybody remembers that? And what God said while they were traveling through the deserts, uh, there, he said, I want to dwell in your midst as you're traveling. I want to be with you. And so what he instructed them to do was to build a tabernacle. And the tabernacle was this beautiful, you know, we would think of it as a glorified tent. Um, because it, they had to pick it up and move it, and whenever they would move and they would stop, they'd put up the tabernacle, and they would pick it up and set it down wherever they went. And in the middle of this tent, the tabernacle, was the Holy of Holies. And in the middle of the Holy of Holies, in the middle of that, was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the Ark, as you might remember from the movie, was this gold-plated chest, beautifully carved, and inside the ark now were all these relics from Israel's history. They were very important. Inside, uh, we were told that there was a jar of manna, an actual jar of manna from when God fed the Hebrews in the desert there, you know, fed them food right from heaven, right out of the sky. And in this jar, it was still preserved. It hadn't gone bad. It was miraculous. Also in the ark were the Ten Commandments that God gave Moses, written by God as a sign of their covenant, his covenant with them. Um, also in the ark was the staff of Aaron. Now, Aaron, if you remember at the time of Moses, he was the high priest. So he was kind of walking alongside Moses. He was the high priest. And the story goes that at one time while they were in the desert in that whole period, um, there was this huge argument that broke out among all the people who rose up. And they kind of said, you know, Moses, why are you and Aaron in charge? Uh, we think we could be the leaders. Why are y'all big shots? Uh, we should be we should be in charge, and so they had this big meeting, and uh, God told everybody to put their staffs on the ground. And Aaron's staff, right in front of everybody, grew leaves and olives, and everybody else went, "Okay, we were perhaps a little hasty. Y'all be the leader. Um, Y'all are the boss." So, so that was in the ark. So all of these very important things. These were symbols, and and the thing in common here, these were symbols of God's covenant with Israel, and they cherish these symbols. They're symbols of a God who shows up and delivers his people, right? They, they could look at those symbols and remember, this is the God who delivers his people. He shows up. He saves us, right? This is the God who's in, we're in relationship with. He's living. He's, he's, he's active. He's present. But these relics were just symbols pointing to the reality of God, okay? And they're in the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark, as you can see there, they, um, there were these big angels that were engraved in gold, the cherubim, and they had their wings stretched out. 
And the scripture says that in the middle of those two angels with their wings, that the glory of God would actually dwell over the ark like a cloud. It just had to be an amazing thing to just be anywhere around. And so um, the other thing about the ark is there's all these very specific rules. How you took care of the ark, what you did with the ark. Uh, nobody was supposed to touch the ark, how you carried it. They, they had these very particular instructions for moving the ark. God had commanded nobody could touch the ark or they would die. So that's pretty important. Uh, so what he said would to do, yeah. Um, so what he had them do was it had these hoops in it, and then they, they he told them to create these long poles made out of acacia wood, and those were plated in gold, and they would slide them through the gold hoops, and then they could lift the ark. The priests, the priests alone, could lift the ark and carry it. And, uh, and so when the ark went out in public, it was carried like this glorious regal procession, right? It was this thing of great value and holiness. So skip ahead a thousand years or so, when David arrives on the scene, the ark had kind of been in storage for a while. In fact, it had, and for a while it had been like lost and then it was found and it had traveled around. And at this time it had been a, in a guy's home named uh, Abinad, Abinadab. And so, because uh, there was a long period of Israel's history, they were at war with all their rivals, and so they kind of... You know, they would, they would take it to different places so it didn't get stolen. And at one time, the Philistines had it. And, and so at, for the past few years, this glorious symbol of the covenant, this, you know, this, like their most sacred thing, it had basically been sitting in somebody's basement for, for a few years, right? It's, it's sitting down there with like a ping pong table on top, you know, for when people come over. And, you know, it's, it's like that. It's just down there, and you just don't touch the thing underneath the ping pong table. But so now David is king, and Israel has conquered its enemies. And one of the big, you know, symbolic things that David wants to do is restore the ark to its rightful place. Right, he wants to put it right in the middle of the capital city of Jerusalem. Because David understood something. He understood himself as a king underneath the king. Right? The ultimate king was God. And he wanted that ark in the center of the city. He wanted that ark to be ground zero of Israel's worship and politics and everything else. So, so he and this parade, as the story goes here, that he and this parade of people, they arrive at this guy's house who's been keeping the ark to go get it and bring it home. Now, let's keep reading in verse 3. This is where it gets interesting. It says, They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah, he figures big in this, and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, they were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. And David and all of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, because um, it was kind of Latino, there was that thing going on, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. And when they reached, or when they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah, reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled and the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Which had to kind of kill the party right then, right? The whole atmosphere. Everybody's like, okay, wow. You know, we read this, we're like, God, sort of an overreaction maybe, right? Right? 
I mean, this is like a God who doesn't want you to touch his stuff, right? It kind of sounds like what this comes down to. Don't touch my stuff. I had, I had a, okay, side note. I had a roommate. Uh, when I was in college, I had a roommate, a guy, nice guy. Uh, he was my good friend, and we moved in. And very quickly, because uh, he learned my personality, he started labeling everything, right? All of his stuff, and I couldn't understand. And because, and you know, I thought what was his was mine and mine was his, but he... he we, did, we were on a different wavelength. Turns out he did not want me to touch his stuff. And so, you know, if you're going to be roommates with somebody, you've got to figure that stuff out before you, before you start living together because that's important. So I learned, yeah, some people are fanatical about their stuff. Um, well, I didn't have any of my own stuff, so that was probably why he was angry because I was always <laughs> taking his stuff. But anything I did have was his. I just didn't have anything. It seemed to make sense to me, but anyway. Now, okay, so, so back to the story. We're, it's hard when we read this. I mean, us, it seems like, you know, it seems like that's kind of the right thing to do, right? The ox stumbles. The cart's about to tumble over. You can imagine what goes through Uzz's mind in that instance. Oh, snap, God's going to spill out all over the place, right? We got we to gotta take care of God. I mean, that would be embarrassing, right? The jar of manna breaks. The Ten Commandments break again, Right? The, the rod of Aaron goes flying somewhere. His motive seems right, right? His motive seems right. But what, what's subtly hinted at in the text, and it, it's hard to pick up unless you kind of do some backstudy on the scriptures, is that the death that Uzzah died, he'd actually died long before. Uzzah had spent so many years with this ark in his house, which probably led to this feeling in his mind that he was taking care of God, taking care of God. And the truth is, we never take care of God. God takes care of us. And we see this in the way he, he kind of deals with the God of the ark. Basically, Uzzah, to Uzzah, this is God in a box. And he really saw God this way. Notice, first off, there's a clue how the ark is being transported. What, what did we talk about with the, the poles, right? What you, how are you supposed to carry the ark, right? You have the poles and you all carry it, you present, right? This very respectful way, carried by priests on poles. Us is like, we got something much more practical, right? What he does is put it on, the, on a cart, it's a trailer with wheels. It's the latest in technology, right? They got these wheels, there's axles. You know, we, we, let's, let's make use of this technology. Um, what's in Uzz's mind, I think, here is efficiency, right? We can get this done quicker. We don't need guys carrying the ark all the way back to Jerusalem. Let's stick it on a cart, right? And, and by first disobeying God in the way it was transported, and then you have to understand God's very specific rules, and everybody knew the rules about, about the ark. He, he kind of displays a pride. It's like a haughty pride in trying to grab the thing that no one else is supposed to touch. It's kind of like saying to everybody, I know this is forbidden for y'all, but see, I've been taking care of this thing for years, so it's cool, right? I'm under a different rule. It's, it's cool. Because the ark to us, it no longer represents a real God in action, God alive, God present. It's God in a box. 
It's full of really important religious artifacts that told really, you know, important stories about some good old days. But God really wasn't here now alive. So when the ox stumbles and the cart starts to tip, he does what he's been doing for years. He's taking care of God. A God that's reduced. This is a God that can't help himself, right? This is a God who needs man to protect his religious icons. Uzzah's, what he's doing is he's managing the religious stuff. So, so I think in many ways, when I read this story, I, I, I think Uzzah, in many ways, he died spiritually long before he died physically. And you know what? If you and I think that we're going to take care of God and that we can manage our own faith because we're in charge of our faith, instead of God taking care of us and you worshiping him, the sad fact is we're dead already too. That's why I really think it, I know sometimes it feels really good, it feels pious to spend enormous amounts of energy and time today like defending Christianity. We defend Christianity, you know, against the government, against sinners, against Hollywood and homosexuals and scientists, you know, everybody. We, we got to defend, defend Christianity. Even look at the language we use, defending the faith. Are we defending the poor? No, defending the faith, right? Instead of sharing our faith. See, we're called to share our faith, right? To make new disciples. To, to be lamb among, lambs among wolves. That's what we're called. Not to protect God from sinners. We're called to worship God, not to protect him. That's kind of blasphemy. You know what I'm saying? Okay, you're quiet. It's okay. I'll let that simmer. So Uzzah dies. And it sort of puts a damper on the whole parade. It's a bit of a downer on the party. And everybody stops and everybody's like, okay, right? And even ang David gets angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, the place is called Perez Uzzah. It's a word that means the breach of Uzzah. The story is written here for a reason for us. The writer put it here for a reason. He's saying to us, the writer's saying, pay attention to this. There's, there's landmarks in this moment that we need to look at. There's something here we need to see. It's not just God was, you know, in a bad mood. There's something really important that people need to listen to what's going on. And, and so what happens in the story is David puts the plan on hold. He immediately brings everything to a stop. And he comes up, they come up with a new plan. And in fact, they wait about another eight, three months before trying the whole thing again. And this time, they carry it out the right way. If you go to verse 12. So three months later, now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom. This is where it's been now for the last three months. And everything he has because of the Ark of God. So David went to bring up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who were carrying the Ark, notice the language here, he's essentially saying, yeah, let's go back and do it right this time, right? We're gonna, we're gonna carry it. When they had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. And wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. Man, they're doing it right this time. Every six steps, man, they, they stop, they set it down, they sacrifice something, they, they dance and sing. I mean, that's, that's taking a long time. Now, now, they're not worried about efficiency anymore, are they? They're not worried about, well, we just got to get into town as fast as we can. They're not worried about that. 
And what we see from David is this totally different picture of worship. Unlike Uzzah, see, David has experienced the God who takes care of him year after year. David knows he's not there to take care of God. He's experienced the, a God that David calls in the Psalms a, a rock, a fortress, a deliverer, a shield about him, right? David recognizes God as almighty, not the thing you take care of, not some idol you sort of bribe, you know, into doing what you want. This is the majestic God of the universe, untamed, right? Uncontrollable, somewhat scary at times. He's, you know, he's not a tame lion, as the one writer said, but some, something to be worshipped. That's David's God. And, and notice, too, David is the king. So usually the one in a situation like that, when the king enters the town, he's the one being paraded through the streets. He's the one, you know, up on the little thing with the guys holding him and carrying him in. That's how kings were carried in through the people. And, you know, he's politely waving from the king mobile and doing this. And he has his servants. They're all dancing in front of him. That's the way a king, that's, that's the normal picture. But David understands his relationship with God. He understands God is the true king, right? I'm the servant. And, and he strips off all of his clothes of the king and makes himself look like what? A common servant. He makes himself look like a servant. It says he's in nothing but a linen ephod here, which is basically like a really snazzy bathrobe, right? And he's down there in his skivvies just getting it done on the dance floor. This is David being the servant worshiper. Whereas Uzzah's worship is really non-worship. It's lifeless religious management, and he dies. David's worship is just like his spirituality. It's raw, it's centered, it's vulnerable, it's not, you know, it's not pretty or proper. It's not even self-aware. It's in the moment, right? David's just, it's all about God right then. And he offers himself to this God who's very different from Uzzah's God. Uzzah's God is in a box. He's artifacts. He's vulnerable and needs protecting. He needs defending and preserving. He's religious memorabilia. And David's God is the great I am who reigns supreme and writes our stories on the palm of his hand. That's David's God. That's the one he worships. But there's another person in this story that we meet. We're introduced here. As David enters the city doing the jitterbug, his wife, by the name of Michal, she's watching him from the palace window. Let's look at this in verse 16. And as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. That's harsh. Skip down to 18. And after David had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. And in verse 20, when David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father. Sing! Right? Or anyone from his house... <laughs> 
you got, you got a little one in there. When he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. I will be humiliated in my own eyes. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now that's kind of a strange little non sequitur thrown in there, but it's appropriate metaphor for McCall's spirituality. Barren, fruitless. When it comes to worship, hers is another picture of non-worship. Right? She's present, but she's not in on it. In fact, it describes her as kind of above and looking down. The writer's very good here, right? Literally, metaphorically. That's where she is. The point of his comment really is not about having kids or not. It's about being alive inside or being dead. There's no life of God welling up inside her. She's just empty and empty and empty, empty. And whereas Uzzah, that we see, he reduces God to a, a relic, Michal makes herself the ultimate judge of what is proper worship. And she's embarrassed by anything that seems unseemly, a little too fervent, unmanneredly. It, it, it's not hard for us to recognize this person. And I'm just going to talk about me. I got McCall in me. I think a lot of us have a little in us, right? I'm guilty of this. This is the rules of worship as defined by the cynic. By someone who really doesn't, if you got down to it, they really don't believe God deserves heartfelt worship like this. But they're going to sit in judgment of anybody who does. Right? And while she's busy trying to be cool, she misses out on the real joy of life. And the more judgment that comes out, she spews out the cynicism, the more barren she's becoming spiritually. So we see here three pictures of worship. Three ways to respond to God. Uzzah, David, Michal. And of course, the fourth character in all of this is the most important character of all. That's God himself. And these four characters are alive and well with us today, right? You and I today, here in 2014, we get to live on the other side of the cross than these guys did back then. We exist today as the church, you and I, the body of Christ, and we worship a God who is here today, who is alive and active and present in our lives. He's... This is a God who's forgiving, he's redeeming, he's untamed, he's a little dangerous, and he's beautiful. This is our God. Not a God in a box, right? Not even a God in a, a cracker or a cup, right? E even this sacred sacrament that we just, we just celebrated together called communion that we, that we did together. For 2,000 years, the church has been gathering together, partake of this, because Jesus told us to. And we, we take this... Even that, it's merely a symbol. It's meant to direct our attention to the living God. Right? It's not some just religious artifact. It's, it's a reminder that God is alive, that he is risen, he is resurrected. He's, he's working and moving in us today. That is our God. And when we come together on a Sunday morning, 
or even during the week when we get together, um, when we do ministry, if you do ministry together during the week, we have an opportunity to engage a God in action, the God alive, the God who is present in us, Jesus Christ, right? He's alive, he's moving. But we have a choice. And we see in this story a picture of three ways we can respond to God. Let's kind of recap them real fast here. Over here we have Uzzah. We know how he responds. Uzzah is the religious manager, okay? Uzzah is alive and well today. The religious manager. The way Uzzah worships God is he reduces God, as if God is somehow tameable. Uh, you know, we can make God smaller. We, we even go through the motions. You know, we're like, ah, I, might, I might read my Bible. I might read it. I might not. Um, the point is, I'm the master of my Bible, so I'll choose. And what I don't like about the Bible, I'll just change or ignore, right? So we tweak it and twist it because we're the managers. And why do we do that? Because we need a God, number one, that'll fit inside our box. Because it's a little scary if he doesn't. We need a God to fit inside that box. We never imagined for an instant that, that God might be something, you know, grander than our nice doctrinal hermeneutic. He might be bigger. We manage our religious experience. We manage God. We defend God. We protect him. We polish God so he doesn't embarrass us, right? So nobody speaks in tongues or something crazy like that. Because what if he spills out all over the place, right? We spend a lot of time making sure God looks okay to the world. Religious managers. And some of us protect our box so long that we mistake that box for God. We think that box is God, right? And, and that's idolatry. That's the definition of idolatry. You're mistaking a box for God. And the truth is you do that and you will die inside. And, and you, you know, if you're, when your posture is God's not a king who takes care of me, I have to defend and take care of him, then you die. And it might not be immediate, but it's gonna be a really slow death sometimes. Right? Churches are full of uzzes. Seminaries today are full of uzzes. And, and they're people who might have gotten into it for the right reasons, right? But along the way, for whatever reason, they just started to protect and care for God. And they forgot their call to be his hands and feet of love to the world. That's the call, right? And so all of a sudden, he's just a box of nice artifacts or nice moral stories. You know, we can tell our kids, He's no longer the living God who moves through history, the God in action, and we die. All right, the other way we respond to God is like McCall, the religious critic. We cross our arms and we judge. Mm. The interesting thing about the McCall, we're usually not the ones in authority at the time. Because McCall's are most comfortable on the sideline. They're comfortable on the sideline kind of looking in the window, looking in on the worship experience that they're not really participating in. Um, and they can give you every opinion on how it should go. They've got really good opinions, right? The music's to this, the songs are to this, the preaching's to this, the church is to this, it's just too, it's small, it's big, it's it's too modern, it's too traditional, it's, you know, too everything. That guy's weird, he preaches too softly, he's too loud, he's weird, he makes me nervous, right? I wish he'd tuck his shirt in, I, I, right? If people would just listen to me and pay attention, 
right? And you know, the problem is that they have opinions. You understand that. Opinions are cool. The problem is they're not engaged in worship. They found a shortcut to worship. You're engaged in criticism and cynicism. And the issue really for us is not a style of worship. You know, you and I, we ought to be, sometimes it's hard, but we ought to be able to worship in any church. We ought to be able to worship, right? Whether whether you're among 20,000 people at Lakewood, right? Or or you're like with 12 people at Country Road, little Hodunk, you know, Presbyterian Church in the little town. You ought to be able to worship anywhere because the style isn't important. The object is important. And if our object of our worship is God, then uncross your arms and bow your knee and worship him. Right? Because it's about you responding to God. And that worship, that worship, it might express itself in, in a myriad of different ways. It might express itself, you know, in some really cool music by the latest, you know, Irish band that only plays like locally grown organic guitars or something like that. That's, it might be that, or it might be this really, really old hymn played on a pipe organ, you know, but it's pointing to something bigger than you. It's, it's bigger than me. That's the point. God's church is big, right? There's so many of us around the world. It's big and it's beautiful and it comes in a thousand varieties of colors, but the McCalls of the world never engage in it. And as a result, their heart, their faith becomes stale, right? There's no life there. And when they get together with other believers, you can, the sign is it's usually a gripe fest. They get together, all they're doing is criticizing somebody else. Why? Because it's a shortcut to sacrifice. The the criticism is a shortcut to the sacrifice of worship. And after dropping their opinions on the church and dropping the mic, they'll leave that place inevitably, and they'll go somewhere else. And guess what? They'll realize that place is screwed up too. (laughs) Right? And, And let's be honest here, okay? We're buddies, okay? Let's be honest. We're not rocket scientists. We know generations isn't perfect, right? It, it must be sort of messed up because you and I go here. <laughs> so right off the bat, how perfect can it be? They let us here. The church is going to be full of imperfect people who need a Savior, so you're never going to find that, that perfect church, right? Hallelujah. Okay. Oh, but then there's David. David is a picture of the humble, sacrificial worshiper. He dances the dance of faith. He's cool with his undignity, right? He's cool with being lower and humbler because the God who is being magnified is the real king who reigns. That's David. And you and I come into this story here today. We're, We're the son of David, Jesus Christ. He reigns as king of kings. Jesus is on that throne. Jesus Christ, the Alpha and Omega, the perfecter of our faith, the one who reigns eternally on the throne, and he doesn't need me to help him up. He doesn't need me to prop him up. He definitely doesn't need all my opinions about the way things ought to be. He needs you to bow your knee and humble yourself 
and dance the dance of worship. Because this king that we, that we serve, he reigns and he is good. Amen? And you know what? We don't have to worry too much about the McCalls. We don't have to worry about their approval. The ones over there taking, you know, taking notes and giving us a scorecard. You know, if they look at me when I'm done, they hold up a big 6.5 instead of a 10. I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to care. Because I don't have to, I don't have to worry about the, the uzzes over here who are stressed out because things are getting a little too out of control. Right? The cart is tipping. God needs to be put back in his box a little bit. He needs to be protected from the people. These people are strange and dirty. We need to protect God. I don't have to worry about the uzzes because what the Davids among us do is they strip down to the rawest, most, most honest them that there is and they worship the God who takes care of us. Your God takes care of you. You don't take care of him. So the question this morning is this. How will you respond to this God in worship? How will you respond? Will, will you come to him with, with lifeless religion? Uh, will you go through the motions because, you know, God's he's, he's part of just the story that needs to be preserved? Will we come to him with arms crossed, watching to see how everybody else is coming, forgetting that we're actually not worshiping either at that moment, judging the motive, motives of others, judging their sincerity, judging the crowd by how they make us feel while our spiritual lives are barren? Or will we come and dance that dance of faith and humility, dance the dance of justice, the dance of faith, of joy and singing, the dance of grief and mourning, and the dance of evangelism and missions, the dance of compassion and mercy? Will we come? Because he's not the God in the box or the God in the cup, or even the God within the walls of this church building right here, right? He is the God of your life. He lives in you and he is alive and he's doing something beautiful today, whether you realize it or not. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you humbly, Lord. We love you, God. We thank you every single day for letting us get to be part of your, your plan, letting us get to be your children, Lord. We thank you for your grace and mercy, which we're, we're totally uh, desperate for every day, Lord God. We thank you for your quickening, Lord, your, your leading, your Holy Spirit that lives within us and is alive, Lord God. And we thank you. We get to be the hands and feet of Jesus to, to a dying and suffering world, Lord God. We get to be the, the mouthpiece of love and hope, not judgment, Lord. We thank you, Lord. Help us to remember who's on the throne and who's doing the dancing and who needs to get taken care of. Thank you, Father God, for your goodness and your mercy. We give you all the praise and honor for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm gonna ask our prayer partners to come forward this morning. And uh, as always, if you're here this morning and you need anything uh, to be prayed over, you need us to pray over you and stand with you in faith, don't leave here without these guys praying with you because it's not the same when, when we pray. Hallelujah. And uh, you guys have an incredible week. We will see you Wednesday night. We're going to start an awesome series on worship. We're just getting started this morning. The series is going to just blow your socks off, and it'll change your life. So make sure you come Wednesday night, and we will see you later. Bye-bye.